Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Yolitics here. This is the post-Thanksgiving podcast. My, uh, my pants are a little tighter than they should be right now. Wheeler? Did you overdo uh, it? Uh, uh, you know, man. I mean, I'm sitting here chowing down on like a... The, the family size hummus, which is coming right after a, a long weekend of eating. Yeah, yeah. So. I know. I know what you mean. For me, it's not necessarily how much I eat. It's that I'm eating things that I never eat, and so, <laughs> like you know, you just have this like reflux for a day, and right. your body is like, "What are you putting in here?" You know. It's just stuff that you don't normally do. And I found that, you know how when you start to eat certain stuff, it makes you crave it more. And so, you know, obviously you're opening like the floodgates of the sugary stuff. And then your body is just like craving that. So for like the next day after, it's it's just like sugar mayhem, you know. And I don't usually do that. But now I'm starting to wean off of that and get back to normal and (laughs) and, and have our normal beer, you know. Yes. Our once a week beer. All right, right. Uh, speaking of calories, what are you drinking today, man? Uh, I am drinking a uh, Spindle Tap Brewery Boomtown Blonde. This is out of Houston, Texas. Impressive, because you did go to the store recently, and you're shopping for yourself now, I guess, instead of yes, getting leftovers. I'm actually doing my own shopping, and so this is um, this is kind of a play on words with Spindle Tap uh, or Spindle Top, rather. Uh, and so you got like a little oil rig on there, and it looks like it's holding a hop uh, or something at the top there. So we're going to give this is one it a, a shot. Porter or IPA? What'd you say? It, it is? is a it, it's it's a blonde. Huh? Yeah. Try it out. Yeah, I'm going to try it out. What are you having? Uh, I'm having the uh, the Golden Mustache from Golden Mustache. I Oak like Highlands that. Brewery. This is in <laughs> Dallas. It's a a German lager. That sounds like a good one. So how, um, how's the uh, how's the blonde there? Very good. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll keep it. Um. So oh, you know, and it makes sense here. You know, because I, I I looked at the ones in the fridge and saw this, and I thought Boomtown, Boomtown Blonde. And here we are. We're talking about, obviously, Texas today because we always talk about that. Uh, But specifically, um, a a part of Texas uh, that is known as the Triangle. And our guest is going to get into some fascinating things. In case you haven't heard much about the Texas Triangle, uh, we're roughly talking about that area from Dallas-Fort Worth down through Austin to San Antonio and then back over to Houston and then back up again. Uh, and it's just kind of staggering some of the, the stats that he rattles off about that area and what that area is doing or not doing as far as driving politics. And he includes it all uh, in this essay uh, that appeared in The New York Times uh, back in October. And it's called Texas is the Future of America. Yeah, the, the uh, essay caught our <clears throat> caught our attention um, right after he wrote it. And he's really kind of boiling down the, the Texas miracle here. You know, this state has been has been just flying, has explosive growth for the last 20, 25 years. But the one thing that's changed is our politics in this state. And uh, our guest uh, we're going to hear from here in just a moment uh, 
you know, he, he discusses whether the state's putting it all at risk. You know, mm-hmm. for the longest time, uh, you know, he points out that that business had a seat at the table, and you know, people complained about that, but it helped the state grow, you know, exponentially. So now here we are, where you have you know lawmakers and leaders saying, "You don't get a seat at the table here. We're we're, we're going to you know consider and pass some social issues, some cultural things that we want to get passed, and we don't care what you think." So the question mm-hmm. is, in this podcast, the thesis for this podcast, as long as we're on the academic side of this, does the is the Texas miracle at risk because our politics are, are, are changing? Yeah, and he makes a really interesting point in saying that uh, Texas politics in these last 18 months or so has especially been different than what you've seen over the past 10, 12 years here in this state. And so that is the question going forward, Jason. Uh, one that he is posing as well is, you know, do we stay on that trajectory? We got a big governor's race, lieutenant governor's race, AG race uh, coming up in 2022. Do we stay on that trajectory? Is Texas, in fact, the future of America and what does that future look like depending on what happens in those elections in 2022? Yeah, so let's go ahead and get to our guest. It's a guy named Stephen Pedigo. Stephen's on the line with us. He's the executive director at a place called the Urban Lab at UT Austin. For people who don't know, what is the LBJ Urban Lab there at UT? So the LBJ Urban Lab is an applied research center at the school Um, that is really looking at Texas cities and metropolitan areas and communities across the state as an urban laboratory, asking the questions if we want to uh, understand what's happening in cities across America, why not do that here um, in the state of Texas? And so, you know, if you want to look at the issues of climate, look what's happening on our our, our Gulf Coast. You want to talk about gateway cities, Houston and Dallas. You want to talk about tech cities, Austin. We are really um, across the state, kind of the future of what urbanism is going to look like. And so that's what the Urban Lab is doing, is looking to explore those issues and ask the questions about what are the policies that are necessary to to grow more inclusively. Hey, before we dive into the the main topic here, let me ask you about that, because we always hear about the Texas Triangle, Uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston and Austin. You don't hear a lot about San Antonio, though, you know, despite its its massive population, its military presence there, Toyota and, and different industries there. Is, is it part of the triangle or is it kind of hanging on Austin's coattails or what? Uh, I would, so I would never tell a San Antonio um, <laughs> um, a resident that they're hanging on the um, coattails of Austin. No, most people, when we define the Texas triangle, we actually do include the San Antonio metropolitan area. So in fact, when we talk about the metro, uh, the triangle, we're talking Houston to Dallas, Fort Worth, to Austin, uh, to San Antonio. Okay. Um, and it's actually a pretty interesting area, right? I mean, you've got um, significant, most of the population, seven to 10 Texans live there now. Um, it's about 1.2 billion in economic output. It's about 70% of also of the state's um, economic output as well. Um, if you care about innovation and technology, it's about 99% of all the venture capital dollars there. And, and to give you a sense of like context, like for me, um, if we were to look at the Texas triangle in terms of its economy, it'd be the 15th largest economy in the world, right? So 15th largest economy in the world. Um, wow. It is is an economy the size of Spain or Mexico, right? So it is it is absolutely the economic engine that drives our state. And to your to, you know, to your other question about the urban rural divide, uh, that definitely plays out in the triangle, right? The triangle is kind of driving the state in terms of in terms of its economic output, and then we see um, much of the other parts of Texas. Our rural communities kind of kind of following behind and following the lead, and that creates this interesting divide that we we see on the you know in policy and politics. 
politics and all those other types of things as well. So I think that's stunning uh, for, for anyone who you know drifted there for just a second. Even we're just talking about this triangle that goes from DFW down to Houston and then Austin, San Antonio, that being the 15th largest economy in the world. I mean, that's just that, that blows me away. I'm curious about this, though. You know, if the state, you know, is 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 so heavily centered there as far as population goes and as far as economic output goes, what about politics? Is that triangle actually driving the politics, though, of Texas? Well, the, well, technically now, no, right? I mean, you can look at the politics. I mean, this is what I write about in, in the Times piece, right? Is the irony? I mean, there's so much irony. Um, as a, you know, so I should probably cards will tell you guys. I'm a born again Texan. I was born in Beaumont. Went away. <laughs> Went to UT, I went to UT Austin as, as an undergraduate, went away for many years, lived in New York and Boston and other places, and have come back and now at the LBJ school. Um, but what's fascinating to me is, as a person that's come back to study cities is that everything that I just described is a very advanced knowledge-based modern data economy, right? Um, that competes with the likes of, of Boston, competes with the likes of Seattle and Denver. Um, we could actually, put, I could put all the cards on the table and say, in fact, if we look over time, we may actually be even more competitive than some of the California metropol- uh, metropolitan areas because of our, our the benefits that we have in terms of cost of living, congestion, and all those types of things. But our politics here, right, is is um, is is maybe slow to follow up on this a little bit. I I, I think that right. I, I think that right now um, our politics, potentially the politics that we've seen in the last eighteen months, is is much different than maybe what we have seen actually uh, maybe even 10 and 12 years ago. Here's what I mean by that. Um, and someone is studying, kind of studied Texas politics and Texas policy, and in fact, I'm kind of thinking about actually writing a book about this, is that one of the great things about our state is that we have been very laissez-faire in our government, right? We've been, encouraged the public and the private sector together to be at the table. Um, that's a very Texan thing. Uh, we've embraced that model. In North Texas, you guys with your your chamber and your North Texas commission does that in Dallas, the partnership here in Austin, the chamber, those groups are very, Texas 2036, very powerful groups, right? Um, and that's created a brand and flavor of politics, which attracted lots of business investment. It's attracted lots of different types of people, people like me coming back home saying, Hey, I want to be here. I want to live here. Um, because there's lots of benefits to some of this limited types of government. But in the last 18 months, We've seen politics that is kind of counterintuitive to that, frankly, right? We've seen an abortion bill. We have, uh, well, it's now a law. Uh, we've seen the, the debate over uh, of, of voting rights. We've seen the debate over, uh, you know, open carry. We go on and on and on the list. And, and what I write in the piece is that all of that recent politics actually is maybe not actually reflective of who Texas is now or even who we're going to go in, in, in the future, which for me, it raises a really interesting question about what 2020 will, what 2022 will look like as we look at the governor's race, as we look at politics across the state. You know, will we continue to march further and further to the right, which as someone like me who studies cities and urban development, I, I have concerns about that for lots of reasons, competitive, mostly around competitiveness. So we can put that aside. Um, but that's good. That's an interesting debate about what that looks like going forward. And are we going to be the Texas that has attracted um, 8.2 million residents in the last 20 years, 40% growth. Are we going to be a Texas that is going to embrace populist conservative politics, which may be not uh, appealing to um, the educated, um, quote unquote, creative class, knowledge-based companies that we have been really pulling in the last decade? Hmm. Stephen, let's talk about the changing demographics there with the 8.2 million over the last uh, you know 20 years or so. You say most of the people and companies that have been drawn to Texas are not conservative. Uh, are not let me, let me quote you here are not conservative pilgrims in search of endless culture war strife 
I enjoyed that line. That's good a one, damn man. good line. I'm proud of that. I really <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> I, yeah, I'll, I'll raise a toast to you on that one, man. Uh, but but you point out that, you know, many are Republican soccer moms and Democratic software engineers. If if Texas is less white than it was 20 years ago, you said less than 40 percent of Texans are are non-white Hispanics or white non-Hispanics. Um, and for every new white resident that Texas welcomed over the past decade, there have been three black residents, three Asians, three people with multiracial backgrounds, and 11 Hispanics as well. Here's my question. When do you expect elections might bear this out? Because re- Republicans continue to dominate in this state. Very much so. Um, but I think a brand of Republican politics, right? So this is the question. I think this is what's going to be on on referendum or on the ballot in in 2022. The brand of Texas Republican, uh, Texas politics, Texas GOP politics is a different brand of politics of where we are today, frankly. I mean, let's just be honest about that, right? Right. Um, Limited government, pro-business, have the business community at the table. I actually think that there's lots of benefits to that and that has been appealing. And in fact, that's been appealing for lots of even quote unquote progressives, right? Folks that are wanting uh, to to be, have access to the to the market and sort of laissez-faire in terms of governance, particularly if you've lived in places like New York or California and other places, you're looking for that limited government. So that brand of GOP politics, I think, has been what maybe has been attractive for lots of uh, lots of different people here uh, to the to our state. Now, the question I think raises that we're that we're going to face is the GOP conservative politics, which is which is populism today, which is abortion. Uh, uh, abortion ban, which is open carry, which is suing school districts for mass mandates, which is uh, um, picking on transgender kids in, in, in sports when there's less than a thousand of them across the state. Is that brand of politics, of GOP politics, is that going to be attractive to the electric? And is that a, that is an, um, a, a something that's going to bear out? Here's two, two data points that may, may, may provide some signal to that. One is that if you look at the UT politics project over time, and I mentioned this in the Times, that for the first time in the history of the project, they record, a negative, they record that 52% of Texans actually now believe that our state's moving in the wrong direction, right? That's one signal point. If you look at the recent, um, uh, there was a great recent poll from Rice University, they'll look at the upcoming governor's election. And if you add, if you take Beto's numbers, you take Beto's numbers and you take Matthew McConaughey's numbers together, Greg Abbotson's potential trouble, right? I mean, there's some potential trouble and potential rough waters. Now, I'm not to say that that either of those guys are going to win the election and that the governor's not going to get reelected. But I do think and I hope that over the course that after we get through this primary and we get through some of this, then maybe we get back to a brand of politics that is more accustomed to what is what is Texas. Because my fear is not that I'm a liberal or a progressive or, or I'm on the left or the right. I always think about my, my hat with my as an economic developer. And I care about cities. I think about how you build economies. And I know the number one driver for people that, that the number one driver for business, uh, for economies today is the attraction and retention of people. And I worry through educated soccer moms, software engineers, all those types of things, people like my husband, frankly, who's a smart architect engineer who says, hey, this stuff's, this stuff's got way too crazy. Let's go back to the Northeast or let's go back to California. I think that's gonna be a real question about what that means for our competitiveness. And you're already seeing that, right? You see, you've seen Salesforce recently tell uh, workers that if they want to make an exit from Texas, they'll fund them. Um, I think mm-hmm. these are big questions that we're going to have, we're going to have to grapple with as a state going forward. Mm-hmm. And, 
And that's one of the points that you made in the essay, uh, basically saying that state leaders are making what you call a fatal miscalculation here, that they can continue to push uh, further right. Um, I wanted to ask you about the businesses who have a seat at the table, though, because, you know, you're mentioning uh, at least some of them who've said, hey, we'll relocate you to other places if you feel uncomfortable with some of these laws that are coming down. Um, But we've also heard criticisms from a lot of people that a lot of these businesses are not only giving money to a lot of these candidates, uh, but at the same time, they're not speaking up as forcefully for some of these social issues. They're kind of caught in that weird spot of, you know, I have a seat at the table, but how much do I say when I'm at the table? Well, I think that's true, right? I mean, it, 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 and, this, and this has been a very, very interesting year for Texas politics, right? Um, in the sense of this is a time where, generally speaking, our leaders have looked to our business officials to have a voice, to be um, at that table. This is this is a year where we have said, look, we don't want to get your opinion. We don't want, you know, we're telling American Airlines and Southwest Airlines and others, hey, you guys shut the hell up. We don't care what you think about voter <laughs> rights, right? Or technology companies, we don't care what what you uh, what you think. And so, you know, I think it's incumbent to like people like myself and other people, uh, organizations that are that are talking about public policy to say, hey, business community, we have this really interesting growth model, this Texas growth model, which I actually believe is a suitable growth model to think about how you manage growth in other states and how maybe you think about revitalization. Let's don't throw the baby out of the bathwater, um, for, you know, at, 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 um, just sort of at the pulpit of, of populism as a right in the times, right? We, we, we know this model works. And if we really care about the economic growth, the well-being of our state, and really about all those things that are coming down the pipeline, um, energy transition, infrastructure development, and all those types of things, let's get back to a moderate brand of politics. Um, that has been really representative of, of, of who we are. And if not, if I'm a CEO of a technology-based company like a Facebook or a Salesforce and an Oracle who've made big investments here, or HP in Houston or CBRE and Acom who's coming to, uh, to, is coming to Dallas, man, I worry over time, am I going to be able to attract um, and retain enough, uh, enough workforce uh, enough skilled workforce to meet the demand of the jobs that I'm going to have going forward. Now, remote work creates a lot of opportunities for those guys, and maybe that's how they get around the edges of that. But at the end of the day, they too, their brands, right? American Airlines, Southwest Airlines, um, Tesla, other places, um, Oracle, all those brands are now associated with the brand of Texas. And so we have to be really cognizant about what, if you're a business, if you're an executive, be very careful about what that brand represents and how that represents who your company is too. That's just my, that's just Stephen Pettigo's thoughts on that. What do you think is going on in the CEO's minds and in those C-suites at American Airlines, at Southwest, at, at a handful of other businesses that did dare come out and, and say something uh, over the summer? I think of the bathroom bill, what, uh, three, four years ago now, and you had a list of 185 companies, small and large, all over the state that that came out against that. Companies aren't speaking up as much uh, this year, despite our far right turn. And I, I'm not sure why that is. Any ideas? You know, I, I, no. I mean, I mean, it's 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 frankly, it's it's a bit disappointing, right? I mean, I think that is um, it, it is. You know, when you look at it was it, it was interesting to me. In fact, when I looked through, so looked through the mass mandate, you saw that there was this the the, back, the debate around the the vaccine mandate, right? Which happened right, right as the legislature was closing at the end of the, of the the third special session. I think I got so many confused. There's so many of them. Um, and you looked at the list. 
I was, you know, it was, it was interesting to see which business organizations were there and which ones were not there, right? right? So Dallas Regional Chamber was there. Houston Greater Partnership was on that list. Austin Greater Chamber was not there. Interesting, interesting, interesting idea. And I don't know why. Could it be the fact that they were in the, 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 um, the, 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 the throes of a debate and, excuse me, a, a courtship of Tesla around the incentive deal package at the time? And so could that play played a role? And we know that te- we know the relationship there with Musk and, and Abbott. So maybe that played a role. Yeah. But unfortunately, I think, again, I don't know why it's happening. I would say that we hope I mean, as Texans, I think we all have to hope that we're going to get to. A, a, a brand, we're going to get back to a brand of politics where business can be that mediator. Look, I, I truly believe that it, even that an extreme progressive politics on the left is not good for Texas, nor is extreme right, right? And so I don't want to come off as just this crazy liberal guy that lives in Austin. I'm a pretty, pretty centric middle, middle guy around, around, uh, around um, my policy uh, leanings. And I think that the business community plays in a really important role here of helping us mediate that. And particularly mediate that when we talk about the divide between city and rural and city and state. And so we need our business community uh, to the table. You know, when you go back to the voters' right piece, when, uh, you know, it was good to see America Airlines and others do it. Why do they do it? I think they didn't do it necessarily because of their workforce. They did it because their consumers across the country were saying, hey, you know, even Major League Baseball, for God's sake, is stepping up against this. Why aren't you doing this as well? You know, let me let me ask you about that because the, the the bottom line question you raise in this essay in the New York Times on October the fifth is is that businesses have to have a seat back at the table, have to have some say, have to have some influence because that's what has made Texas what Texas is over the last fifty years. What has to happen though? What's the breaking point? What what needs to happen in order for businesses to regain their influence? Well, I mean, I think one is that do we see start to see some excess of some uh, some of these technology based companies? Do we see the expansion and uh, expansion efforts slow down? Do we see less uh, less of that? Um, do we see um, see rankings like you know Site Selection Magazine and others in my in my space are ranking states all the time about their about their friendliness for businesses and competitiveness? Um, we have fell on that ranking uh, as a state, and will that continue? So, you know, I think there are some signs there. Um, that 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 will uh, from a politics side um, is going to actually force us to to think that through. The other thing I think that so politics aside, I'm an urban guy. I'm a metro guy. I'm a city guy. And one of the things that I know, what we know in the field that 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 I practice is that Texas is going to eventually face the same challenges that New York and California and other metropolitan areas are facing. I'll say that your your listeners are going to hate that, but it's true, right? We are going to face the affordability issues of New York and Boston and Seattle and Houston, uh, Seattle and San Francisco. Our I think we already are in some pockets, aren't some we? Point, yeah, of course. And so the 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 only way to to solve those issues in Texas, because of our our the way our our um, our policy is is dictated and the way we operate as a state is that it doesn't get solved from a top-down perspective from city and governance and metro planning planning organizations. In New York and California, that's how it would be solved, right? Hmm. But in Texas, we believe in the market. and Market with guardrails, I hope, but the market. Hmm. And so that means that the private sector actually is going to have to get at the table, right? And so I think we see a couple of things uh, to do that. One, does the politics get too far right that, that we start to see talent erosion and expansion? That's one. 
Two, the urban growth challenges that we face just become too significant for us to overcome that our business community is kind of forced at the table to do that um, and really uh, make a play there. All right, let's talk about the urban-rural divide that we see here in Texas and more broadly the country. Uh, Democrat Beto O'Rourke now officially running for governor here in Texas and says he plans to go visit all 254 counties here in Texas just like he did in his 2018 senatorial run. How crucial is that uh, for a candidate in the Democratic Party to not just focus, as they usually do, on that vote-rich urban triangle and appealing to urban and suburban voters, but head out into that sea of red and find rural voters where they are? You know, the great Molly Ivins would say there's nothing in the middle but roadkill, right? But maybe in this time, (laughs) right, Um, that, that in fact... If I was advising these, if I was advising a candidate, and I think you can see this from Matthew Dowd at the lieutenant, who's running for on the lieutenant uh, governor's side, I think that though I think that we can see in the middle that there is this opportunity to take back this pragmatic politics in the middle, and 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 uh, uh, and it's sort of around united, uh, being a uniter. The battle for the governorship and battle for the lieutenant governor happens in suburbia here in Texas, in Metro Texas, uh, because we are. Even when Abbott ran four years ago, we are a dramatically different state. I mean, we're dramatically different in the amount of growth that we've experienced. So so what's your prediction then for the governor's race? Does Abbott have trouble or can O'Rourke really reignite the magic from 2018? Well, I think 2021, uh, 2022 has got a lot of variables that we aren't talking about now. One is uh, Roe versus Wade, uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, and what happens in June will make, I think, will be the dynamite issue that will be a big predictor about what happens in state poli- uh, congressional races and state races across the country. That's my that's for me. That's one big issue that I don't, I don't think we have an, a clear understanding of how that's going to go. The implications for that. Two, I think <clears throat> once the governor gets through his uh, his primary with his friends on the right. Um, and they're an interesting group of dudes. Um, um, does he moderate again? Does he come back to being the traditional Greg Abbott that I think we've all known and known him to be um, in the likes of a George W. Bush and a Rick Perry? That's a big question, I think. I still don't think that, you know, over time, the abortion bill, the transgender bill and all these other cultural bills, critical race theory and all that continues to play in the favor um, of resonating with fairly moderates. I think they'll find those issues to be to be fairly um, um, unappealing. Now, I, that's just my thought. I think that, um, and again, I'm making it, I'm making a big ish, a big leap here that I think most more urban, more urban and more even suburban develop uh, voters are becoming more, um, more democratic, perhaps. I, the other thing you have to think through, right? And I think this is the other thing that a lot of political pundits don't get. It drove me crazy listening to um, the, the, the shows last night and turned it off, was that America's suburban communities are not the suburban communities that they were when Barack Obama got elected or uh, uh, Barack Obama got elected or even when we first elected Donald Trump. Because of the issues of gentrification and displacement and affordability and all those issues that we are seeing in our metro areas, our suburban areas are actually ex- way more diverse than they've ever been in the past. Right. And so that creates a whole now. And, and, and I'm not saying diversity equals liberal or progressive politics, but we can follow trends over time. And so, you know, does that present a more competitive race? I don't you know, 
Governor Abbott is a strong candidate. He has 55 million bucks in the in the in the bank. Um, he is a, a stronghold on politics here. He is a brand that we all know, that a lot of us a lot of us know. Um, and so I'm not predicting that a, that, a, that a Democrat will win or lose, a Democrat will win, but I think it's going to be an extremely competitive race. And what makes it interesting as Texans is this crazy is, here's my bias, this extremely conservative social agenda will be on the referendum and we're all going to have to live, we're all going to own that and make a decision on that. Uh, my last one for you today, Stephen, I, I know that you obviously are passionate about what you do there at the LBJ Urban Lab. Uh, you're also a professor, though, at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. And I'm curious, how do you how do you keep up with all this stuff? Uh, I mean, it seems like things are changing so fast. There's so many different dynamics. Maybe it's always been that way and it just feels that way because we're in it. But how do you keep up with all of this as you teach the students the next generation? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I've always loved about my work. So. If you look at my background, I am not your traditional ivory power academic. I think the thing that has always made my work really interesting is I'm um, I'm a I'm an applied faculty member. I so I am on the street. I mean, I do uh, work every day um, that is about about advising communities all over the country about how to think about development. And so a lot of that has been here um, in Texas, uh, in Houston, in Dallas, in Austin, and other places. And a lot of it becomes so. A lot of it is about you know taking it, looking at data, but also just being a man on the street, right? A person on the street and just sort of seeing and looking to see how demographics and, and changes are happening here. Um, and so for me, that's always what's made this work really interesting is taking the data and the trend, but also mismatching it with what's really happening and being engaged and working with uh, policymakers um, every day. And then to, to tie this off the way we started about the uh, essay you wrote, what is the feedback been that you've gotten? Because you go after progressives, liberals, and and conservatives. So when I wrote the piece and told the editor, I was like, this piece is got, I, when I was pitching the piece, I'm like, this piece is going to be a really, uh, will be a success because everyone will hate the piece, right? Like, <laughs> we loved it, man. What are you talking no, about? Progressives and, no, progressives and liberals will hate the idea. That te- I mean, across the country, if you look at, the, there were like 1,300 some odd crazy, you know, crazy comments. But if you look at the comments on the piece, the feedback online, people, first of all, I would say people are fascinated with our state right? Fascinated with what's happening here. There's always been a fascination about Texas. I truly believe in the argument that I make that if you want to understand America, you understand Texas. It's not California, it's Texas. And there's lots of reasons why. Um, but if you are a liberal or progressive and, and, I, and you hear a guy from UT Austin saying that, um, that's pretty unsettling when you look at the way the politics and the way that Texas has been covered in the, in the press in the last 18 months. And it, it doesn't align with your politics. Um, on the flip side of that, if you're a conservative, you're like, who is this guy in an ivory tower in Austin, Texas, telling us that we're making bad policies and bad political decisions? What the hell does he know, right? Um, what I try to do in this piece, and the reason I think it, it resonates and you either love it or you hate it, is that I try to send it as a wake-up call. For me, this piece was all about saying, we've been extremely competitive. We've kind of got a growth model here that's working, that I that can be a model for other places, with some tweaks. Let's just don't, let's just don't throw it out the window um, for, you know, crazy progressive politics in our, in our cities, which we have in, in our cities. Some of our cities have gone extremely left and the extreme right and in, in our statewide politics, which creates lots of dissension. That middle business driven, focused, um, competitive driven sort of uh, approach to growth has served us well. And we should continue and double down on that because we've got big challenges ahead of us um, to face across the state, energy transition, climate, all those types of things, um, infrastructure development. And if, if we're not thinking about it 
with some moderacy to the politics, um, we get nothing done. We essentially become Washington, right? But crazy reactions aside, you stand by the, you know, if we boil down that essay that Texas is the trendsetter, it's not California. Texas is the trendsetter. Absolutely, man. I mean, I, I can give you, I can walk you through the data, right? So the da- here's, here's the thing. Everyone looks at California and says, oh, California is the growth trend. Uh, um, I love doing this because I have friends in California and they hate me about this. They think I'm being a snotty <laughs> asshole. I'm not. But if you look at the data from 1970, so let's just look at the census data, right? From 1970 to 2020, 50 years of growth. To understand the growth is to look at the growth over the course of those 50 years. California actually only had one significant boom in its population where it outpaced the United States. And that was from 1980 to 1990. And there's an extreme spike. And that extreme spike then over the course of 50 years, basically pushes California just a little bit ahead of the US average. But if you look over the course of from from 2000 to 2020, California's actually trailed the US in growth. Um, And Texas has actually been um, almost doubled the growth of the US. And so as you look across the country and you wanna understand what those growth engines are, those growth engines aren't New York, they're not California, they're states like Texas, Arizona, Colorado, Utah, Florida, and Georgia. Um, and so we become number one, the growth engine. And then number two, if you follow what I do, you know, the type of stuff that I do, there are two, the other two trends that we know that are happening, three trends that are happening across the country is that number one, America's becoming more diverse. All of our growth in Texas, 95% of it is people of color. And two, America's becoming much more uh, metropolitan in the sense of we are, rural communities are declining. This has happened all over, uh, been going uh, for, for decades upon decades, but we're becoming more metro and urban. Very much so the case of Texas. Three million Texans still live in rural communities, but 96% of all the growth in Texas happened in Texas metros and cities, not in, not in, in rural communities. So we're, we're also, in a sense, urbanizing as well. So diversing, urbanizing. And the second, the third point is, on average, Americans are becoming more educated and more skilled. And that is true for Texas. Texas is also becoming more educated and more skilled. We've got to do a better job of that um, than we are um, to ensure that native Texans are getting access to these jobs. But generally speaking, our state's becoming more educated as well. Stephen, those data points really tell the story, man. And the essay is is a fascinating read. Thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's good fun to chat, to chat y'all. So 96% of all the growth uh, is happening in Texas cities and suburbs. I mean, that, that makes sense. We just don't see a lot of small towns exploding with growth. We see the suburbs exploding with growth. We see, uh, you know, the metro areas in, in Texas getting wider than they ever were before. Mm-hmm. But when you get out to places in East Texas or West Texas or, you know, down along the uh, some places the border, they're just not bustling like the mm-hmm. metro areas are. What it comes down to when you put it in terms of politics, though, Jason, is, yes, those urban areas, they're bustling like crazy. They're growing like crazy. They're more diverse than ever. But do they turn out to vote the way that that sea of red, when you look out, like especially, you know, west of uh, San Antonio and Austin, you just see the sea of red go across the map every election day. Will that triangle with that is so vote rich, does it turn out and does that vote get 
get uh, diluted in 2022 more than it has been because we've seen some redistricting happening, uh, even with those urban and suburban districts where they've you know redrawn the lines and kind of brought in maybe some of those smaller uh, towns that are around those areas. So it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, that may be the game changer or will the game changer be that the Democratic candidate at the top of the ticket this time, Beto O'Rourke, started out, as you saw, campaigning outside the triangle, way down in the valley, right off the bat. And uh, as you know, from his famous run in, in uh, for uh, senator back in 2018, uh, he went to all 254 counties, went out to some of that you know sea of red out there. Does that make any difference? We, we shall see. Yeah. And he said he told us again, the podcast a few episodes back that that he would revisit all 254 counties again. So, yeah, we shall see on that. But, you know, this has long been an issue that rural parts of the state have an outsized influence at the Texas legislature. Mm-hmm. It's not just in Texas. It's, a, it's across the country that these major metro areas where the, the, your population centers are, are uh, you know, in, in, in some sense, they're, they're not as influential as maybe they should be. Now, the opposite end of that is you don't want to have city folk telling everybody exactly right. what to do because life, life in the, the rural areas, they have a completely different set of needs. Uh, out there too. So there's a fine balance there at, at, at issue is, is whether Texas is getting to that tipping point, like you said. Yeah. And like Stephen said, he's super energetic, man. I like having him on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> I, I think for democracy to work, you know, best the way it's supposed to is that you've got to somehow strike that tricky balance uh, between urban and rural. And boy, have we seen uh, such a divide there between urban and rural these past couple of election cycles. Uh, so, you know, it, it's going to be a, a, a fascinating thing to keep an eye on, you know, f- for us, because we live here in Texas, but also for the rest of the country, because, you know, as he, you know, titled his essay in The New York Times, Texas is the future of America. And, and I was particularly stricken by uh, his, his last line in that essay where he says, uh, as goes Texas, so will the United States for better or for worse. Mm, 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 mm. Well, a uh, a quick note, programming note here, as as some say, uh, we are we are stoked about our next episode as well. We are going to a uh, a bar I've never been to in a city where Wheeler used to live. I'm not going to give too much away here, mm. but it is a historic bar. It's not the Minger uh, Hotel bar down in San Antonio, but we're going to San Antonio with a a major CEO uh, of a corporation that's based in Texas. And uh, we're going to have a few drinks and, and uh, talk to him. So this this is going to be an exciting episode yeah. coming up next week. It is going to be fascinating uh, because, you know, we were just talking about this a moment ago about how the model has been built here in Texas, where business has always had a seat at the political yeah. table. And that's part of what we're going to get into uh, with this very special guest next week. Uh, it should be a great conversation. So if you haven't already done it, please subscribe to the podcast. You get these things as soon as they drop. You don't have to go look for them uh, and download them each time. It just comes straight to you each week. So subscribe to it and tell all your friends and family to do the same. And we will uh, do it all again next week.